And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. And welcome, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. You have entered into Virgil Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo. Yes, it is great to be back. I hope everybody had a fantastic weekend. Um, yes, it's time to get back into the dojo, you know, and um, get back in the routine of learning, loving, sharing, defending the faith, and equipping ourselves so that we could be worthy instruments of Christ to share his gospel and defend it out there. And so it's great to be with you today. And, and uh, yeah, we we got a great show. We're going to start off the week with a bang because we're going to have Mark McNeil come on the other side of the break. And we're going to continue our discussion on St. Thomas Aquinas. Now, as you know, St. Thomas Aquinas, the angelic doctor, is so important for uh, defenders of the faith, for uh, explaining the faith. His clarity is remarkable, and his systematic thought really helps uh, to uh, clarify a lot of the uh, the fuzzy thinking, the, the errors that are out there. But over and above that, I mean, his person, uh, his life, um, his moral teachings— spiritual food. I mean, Thomas Aquinas has it all as far as I'm concerned. And so I've been really enjoying this series we've been doing with Mark McNeil on Thomas Aquinas, uh, just looking at all different aspects of Aquinas. And uh, I've learned a lot through the series. I know you have. And so we're going to continue today and talk about the angelic doctor. I mean, what better way is there as we're approaching Lent? to start off with a great feast. You know, it's not Fat Tuesday yet, but this is a feast in terms of theology and philosophy and so on. So that's coming up on the other side of the break. On this side of the break, as always, we're going to do what we always do. We're going to find a fallacy, look at a formal logical fallacy, kind of sharpen our critical thinking skills so that we'll be able to spot bad arguments. Today's finding the fallacy is the begging the question fallacy. Very basic um, uh, fallacy I think most people are familiar with, and even though it's most people know it, it still occurs out there. So we'll talk about uh, begging the question in a second. Also, we meet an early church father. Today we're going all the way back to uh, one of the most ancient early church fathers. In fact, he is called an apostolic father, and that is Pope St. Clement of Rome. So uh, got great stuff in store for us today. But before we do all that, I want to welcome all of you to the show, beginning with our live stream audience. Hi, everybody. Also, I want to welcome all of you listening on radio around the country and also via podcast around the world, either through our handy dandy phone app or our flagship website, which is org, the flamethrower 
of grace and truth, I guess he could say, in the the uh, the cybersphere. Um, also, all of you uh, listening podcasts through all the different distribution sites and, and other alternative meaning, welcome aboard, everybody. Uh, I always uh, enjoy getting emails from people because it, it's remarkable the, the reach this program has all over the world that we have listeners to hands-on apologetics. And so, you know, I'm very humbled by that. And I'm also very inspired that uh, we need to do our job here in the dojo to uh, be good servants and and help everybody out. And by the way, speaking of helping out, if you have any questions or you know maybe you want to run some ideas past me, love to hear from you. The way to get a hold of me is through the official dojo mailbox, which is questions at handsonapologetics.com. That's all one word. Questions at handsonapologetics.com. That goes directly to me. Uh, I know there's a bunch of outlets out there, and some of them I really don't have anything to do with. But uh, sometimes I'll get emails from far and wide, weird you know, addresses I don't recognize. Uh, this is the best way to go, just because it goes straight to me. And I do answer your emails. Believe it or not, I do. Not always timely, but I do answer them eventually. And by the way, if I don't, please send me another email and let me know. Never know the sneaky chunk file <laughs> folder. I, I check it every day, but you never know if things slip through. So, it, you know, it just happens. So um, let's see. Am I forgetting anything? No, I think we're all set for our finding the fallacy for today, which is the begging the question fallacy. The fallacy of begging the question occurs when an argument's premises assumes the truth of the conclusion instead of supporting it. In other words, you assume without proof the stand or position or the significant part of the stand that's in question. So begging the question is also called arguing in a circle. And indeed, if you're following the logic of someone who is begging the question, you, you will start getting dizzy spells because it just seems like you're going around and around in a circle and uh, you never end up, you know, the, the, the conclusion is already assumed in the premises. Uh, there's lots of stock arguments for that. For example, how do I know the Bible's inspired by God? Well, the Bible says it's inspired. And if it's inspired, it cannot err. Therefore, it is inspired. Well, you're already sneaking in the idea of inspiration when you're trying to demonstrate that it is inspired, right? So that would be a, a classic example of circular reasoning. Um, you find this all over the place. Uh, since everybody knows about this particular fallacy, often begging the question fallacies that are actually out there in argumentation are usually much more subtle. And so you need to be aware of that. Sometimes they will uh, change the meaning of terms throughout uh, an argument, and that will kind of cloak a begging a question. But again, what you need to do is just follow the argument step by step. And like I said, if it's a circular argument, you should feel a little dizzy at the end because it, it seems just to go round and round and end up nowhere. So that is our finding the fallacy for today. The begging of the question. All right, let's meet our early church father for today, who is Pope St. Clement of Rome, 
Very important early church father for Catholic apologetics and just uh, general. He's an apostolic father, which means he comes from the very beginning, has apostolic ties. Um, there are various early lists of the bishops of Rome, which makes Clement either the first, second, or third successor of Peter. Depending on uh, the reason why there's different lists and different numbers has to do with whether or not you count Peter as the first pope or not the first pope. Um because there is a subtle difference between an apostle and a disciple of the apostle, or rather a bishop. Uh, so the lists differ that way. And then there's also the matter of Peter's third successor, who is called Anacletus or Cletus, depending on the list. So they all agree you have Peter, Linus, either Cletus or Anacletus, and then you have Clement. That's usually how the order goes. Um to base Clement's title as an apostolic father on his supposed association with St. Peter is best somewhat tenuous, according to Jurgen's faith and early fathers. But whether or not he was Peter's convert, as the pseudo-Clementine uh, literature has it, whether or not he was consecrated Peter's successor by Peter himself, as Tertullian would have it, he nevertheless certainly is worthy of the title apostolic father, uh, simply from the fact that he is a man of the apostolic age. Traditional dates for Clement's pontificate is from AD 92 to AD 101. Uh, however, Jurgen says these are uh, not unworthy of credence, believing that uh, there is good evidence for dating the sole extent authentic work of Pope St. Clement of Rome to that of 80 AD a work clearly written by by him while he was Bishop of Rome, and the present author, that is Jurgens, dates Clement's uh, pontificate accordingly. So as uh, Jurgens just mentioned, we have only one authentic work from Pope St. Clement I. That is his letter to the Corinthians. Uh, it is um, as opposed to the second letter, or second Clement, which is uh, not an authentic letter of Clement. Uh, the original Greek is preserved in its entirety. And um, with regards to the date of composition, it's it's almost uh, universal acceptance for no good reason of uh, 96 or 98 AD. So generally you'll see that date. This dating is based upon the acceptance of the year 92 or 101. It's constituting uh, Clement's pontificate. And as we said, really outside of this, no one really takes those dates seriously. So uh, upon the opening words of the body of the letter, which says, quote, owing to the sudden repeated calamities and misfortunes that have befell us, which is taken to be re referring to the persecution of Domitian in order to fit the obscurely alluded to events of the period 92 to 101 AD. However, uh, that there was a persecution under Domitian has, uh, is a supposed fact which rests on very slim evidence and itself scarcely more than conjecture. The present author believes that there is better internal evidence for the dating of the work, in especially chapter 64, where he names the names of the legates who carry the letter to Corinth are given, Claudius Ephibius and Varius Vito. Such names can scarcely be otherwise explained as uh, belonging to freed slaves of the household of the emperor Claudius, and his wife, uh, Valerie Massalia. Um, Roman law prohibits the freeing of slaves under 30 years of age. It is evident then that these two men in question cannot have been born before AD 20. 
And if they were freed uh, near the beginning of Claudius's reign, that would mean that they were born no longer, no older than uh, AD 10, which would place the letter somewhere around AD 80. And that is our early church father for today, Pope St. Clement of Rome. Coming up next, Mark McNeil, talk about St. Thomas Aquinas. Stay tuned. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. We're going to be talking about the angelic doctor, St. Thomas Aquinas, with our good friend Mark McNeil. Mark is assistant principal for formation and member of the theological department at Strake Jesuit College Preparatory, where he's been since 2000. He has earned a master's degree in scripture, theology, and philosophy. Mark also teaches theology part-time for the University of St. Thomas and has spoken at parishes and conferences throughout the Houston area. And he was received into the Catholic Church in 1999. And also, by the way, he's the author of a fantastic book, which uh, chronicles his own journey into the Catholic faith and specifically the Trinity. It's called All in the Name, How the Bible Led Me to Faith in the Trinity and the Catholic Church, put out by Catholic Answers Press. Great job over there at Catholic Answers Press. And Mark, welcome back to Hands-On Apologetics. Thanks for having me, Gary. <clears throat> good to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you as well. So how, how's life in the Houston area? I see there's sunshine outside. I'm kind of jealous. Yeah, it's nice. Uh, it's been a rainy, kind of cold weekend, but uh, it's clearing up and it should be a nice week here. Okay. Now, what would you consider a cold weekend in Houston? Uh, probably not what you would consider a cold weekend. <laughs> it, uh, it, it, it was in the 30s and 40s. Uh, oh, most of the days, okay. the last two or three days. Uh, today, I think it's getting up in the upper 60s, and it'll be 60s to 50s, I think, the rest of the week. Wow. Okay. Yeah, so we got uh, close to uh, freezing down there then. that That is pretty cold for your neck of the woods. Yeah, we get we get a little bit of it, but not a lot. Do you ever get snowfall, by the way? Just curious. Almost never. About once every 10 years or so in Houston, uh, because the... We're so close to the Gulf of Mexico. There's always warm air that's kind of pushing up. If you go uh, three or four hours north of here, like in Dallas, they get a lot more snow. But just where we are, there's uh, we're, we're too close to sea level and there's too much warm air that pushes out the cold. So if it gets cold here, it doesn't stay cold very long usually. Nice. Nice. Very good. Yeah. yeah sorry for dwelling on weather. It's just this time of the year. <laughs> I kind of live yeah. vicariously through my uh, southern guests. So. St. Thomas Aquinas, I have to say, I've really enjoyed our series so far on Thomas Aquinas. Uh, just a remarkable life, remarkable corpus of writings, uh, remarkable insights, spiritual insights. I mean, uh, of all the saints, he seems to have the whole package. Yeah, there's a lot to be said for that. I mean, Aquinas, uh, you know, he, did, he didn't know everything, but he sure did have a balanced uh, way of uh, putting it all together. And so the, the, the reason why I say I didn't know everything is, you know, we keep learning about ourselves and about human psychology and about the, the scientific understanding of the world. But what Aquinas gave us is those things. And so it's, uh, it's not like a lot of things that you just kind of have to throw them aside or, or they're outdated. With Aquinas, his... Uh, his approach is so 
in one way commonsensical uh, and, uh, and so clear and so balanced that it continues to be, uh, for many of us, it continues to be a wise, enduringly uh, useful framework uh, for thinking about uh, especially faith and reason uh, and how they relate to each other. But Aquinas had, uh, had so much to say about so many things uh, that it's, uh, it, it's truly remarkable. Yeah, it is. And especially for those who want to defend the faith, uh, the clarity and uh, how systematic he is in this thought is, is so helpful for us because, I mean, the faith is so big. Like you said, there's so much to learn, and we're still even learning by ourselves and, and uh, you know, getting deeper appreciation of God. Uh, it's easy to get lost in the weeds. And Thomas Aquinas does a nice job breaking things down into bite-sized pieces, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, he certainly had a vision of, of, you know, he had a, and I think we talked about this early on when we were thinking about Aquinas, is uh, he had this vision of all things as coming from God and as trying to find their way home to God. And in the human person in particular, uh, we have this uh, Aquinas, uh, and he's not he's not unique in this, but he I think has uh, arguably the most developed understanding of human beings as a kind of microcosm of the whole cosmic process. And so, uh, all of God's creation kind of expresses itself in a variety of different ways. You know, we have we have rocks and dirt and plants and animals and then human persons and then angels. Uh, the, the whole uh, you know array of God's creation, but. Human beings, Aquinas argues, are the most complete of all of God's creation because we sum up the whole story in ourselves. So we're like the rocks and the dirt in that we exist. We're like the plants and the animals in that we live and we have a sensory relationship to our environment. But we're also like the angels in that we can think rationally and we can uh, seek God. And so uh, human beings uniquely tell the whole story of God's universe in each one of us. Uh, and it's in studying ourselves that we come to discover what we're made for. We're made for God. Uh, and we find that the key to our real happiness is in union with God and the beatific vision that Aquinas talks about so much. Uh, and so, um, you know, he has, uh, yes, he has a lot to say about a lot of different things, but at the same time, he has this central vision of everything that's really rather simple, uh, but but he sees everything as speaking of that central mystery of the purpose of our creation and the uniqueness of the human person. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's just beautiful. Yeah, we, and I think we, we talked about maybe way back when we first started, in a very real way, I think uh, St. Thomas Aquinas was a mystic, and but he was also a great philosopher and so he he used this philosophy to kind of unpack that uh, his vision of God. And like you said, you know, there is a core theme that runs through throughout it, all of his thought. And so, which is great because you could be reading about his work on the soul or on angels or on morality or, you know, the attributes of God. All of them coincide within this larger vision. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so I, I was thinking about uh, before uh, our conversation yesterday, I, I was looking at what we had talked about last time. We, we spent, I think, the last maybe two of our conversations looking at a, a text that I've long really been fascinated with in Aquinas in the Summa Contra Gentiles, uh, which is really Aquinas's uh, 
the closest thing to an apologetic work of Aquinas's. I mean, it, it, the purpose of it is apologetic. He's wanting to give a kind of a handbook or manual for defending the faith, especially for people that are dealing with, say, Muslims, but all kinds of other groups, too, that would ask questions about our faith. Uh, how would we present the faith? And so the Summa Contra Gentiles is a work of apologetics. And uh, anyway, what we had been doing the last couple of times is looking at a, a text that I'm, I just find so fascinating in, uh, in the fourth book of this work, chapter 54, where Aquinas is offering some, a series of arguments, really about 10 or 12 of them, arguments for this, what he calls the suitability or fittingness of the incarnation. Um, and, uh, and so he's offering some reasonable arguments that lead us to consider, you know, it really does make sense that God would unite himself to human nature. There's a real a compelling set of reasons for that. And so the last couple of times we've been looking at some of those reasons. Uh, but I thought maybe what we could do in this one, because we had almost reached the end of that, there were a couple of other arguments that he offered us that, uh, that um, it would take a little time to unpack them. The last of them, maybe I could just mention in, in passing, is, uh, is, is also a very powerful one. He uh, argues that to the degree that we're conscious of the fact that we're all sinners, uh, that we've fallen short of God's uh, expectations for us as human beings, that we've violated God's moral law, uh, it makes sense that, uh, that God would become incarnate because uh, satisfying for our sins requires two things. One, it requires that a, um, uh, a member of the human family offer satisfaction to God for our violation of God's law, but no one hu merely human is sufficient to satisfy for the sins of so many people. And so what we need is one who is both human, but also uh, of divine uh, value so that his offering or his uh, sacrifice uh, is, is sufficient to take away the sins of the whole world. So he argues that, that Christ being the God-man or God incarnate, is necessary to satisfy the two things that are needed to deal with human sin. Uh, again, first, that he be a member of the human family, but second, that his sacrifice be sufficient, not just for himself, but for the whole human family. That would require a divine uh, uh, satisfaction. And so, so anyway, that's his uh, concluding argument that he offers uh, for uh, the, the fittingness of the incarnation. But what I thought maybe we could start thinking about in um, in this uh, conversation is his uh, his case for or the way he presents apologetics at the beginning of this uh, of this work. In fact, the beginning of book four, uh, he offers some arguments uh, uh, for uh, the apologetic method that he uses uh, that's outlined in this. Now, at the beginning of book one, which I'm not looking at now, but at the beginning of book one, he gives a more elaborate uh, presentation of this uh, approach that he takes. But what he does is, and, and I'm looking at uh, chapter one, uh, paragraph one of the fourth book of the Summa Contra Gentiles. What he does is, and he does this in a lot of different ways in his in his various writings, is he puts his finger on a paradox at the core of human experience. And that paradox, and by paradox, I mean uh, what seems to be a contradiction that turns out not to be a contradiction once you investigate it. But he thinks there's built into human experience a paradox. That paradox is this, 
that we, uh, and the way, the words that he uses, and I'll use his words and then kind of try to explain them. He says the human intellect is, uh, has a co-natural, co so, and he uses this word co-natural or co-natural uh, in various parts of his writing. And what it basically means is uh, that there is a natural kind of aptitude or a natural, um, um, uh, let's let's call it uh, a, a kind of natural disposition for a certain uh, experience. So let me explain it this way. It's very comfortable for me to, if you ask me right now, well, what color is the table that you're that you're seated at, or what color are the walls in the room? It's very easy for me to answer that question. Uh, it's unnatural for me. Uh, to look at things and identify their color or their shape. Uh, so if you ask me, what's the shape of your uh, computer screen? Uh, well, that's very easy. It's rectangular. Uh, if you ask me, what's the color of the keys on the, co on the computer? They're black and white. Uh, that's easy uh, because my sense experience is connatural with me. It's, it's something that I have an easy ability to uh, explain and acquire. But if you uh, speak to me, uh, you know, the Ukraine and Russia's are in the news, in the news. If you speak to me words in Russian, uh, I'm not going to have a very easy time interpreting what you say because I don't know Russian. But if you speak to me in English, that's easy. I can, I can pretty well understand most things that people say in English, uh, but not in Russian. I'm that, that has not become an acquired habit of mine to know Russian, but it is an acquired habit of mine to know English. Aquinas thinks for us as human beings, it's easy for us to talk about sensible things. I'll show you at the other side of the break where I'm going. Okay, sounds good. We're chatting with Mark McNeil talking about St. Thomas Aquinas and the Summa Contra Gentiles. Stay tuned, folks. More to come right after this. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody. We're chatting with Mark McNeil, talking about St. Thomas Aquinas, specifically his work, uh, the other Summa. Most of us are familiar with Summa Theologica, but the Summa Contra Gentiles, which is also one of my favorite works of his. And before the break, uh, Mark, you were talking about that uh, Aquinas is speaking about his methodology, that there is this paradox within human nature, and he uses a term co-natural so uh, if you ask what the color of a table is, we have a natural disposition to answer that immediately, where um, perhaps it, when it comes to something like language, we have to acquire the habit to understand a particular language. So if you speak in Russian, for example, and you don't know Russian, uh, you, you wouldn't be able to answer it because you wouldn't understand the question, I guess. Sure. sure. So, uh, so the next uh, piece of this is... Uh, is Aquinas returning to a point that he demonstrates elsewhere, and we've talked about it here. He turns to this idea that human beings uh, only find our, our true, full happiness in union with God. Uh, and the way he argues for that is to show that all the things that we often think are going to make us happy really don't make us happy. They just, uh, they just sort of uh, briefly and temporarily satisfy this deep longing we have for happiness. And we discover upon reflection uh, that only God can bring to rest those longings of the human soul. But here's the paradox. The paradox is that uh, on the one hand, 
we have this uh, natural aptitude to grasp things through the senses. But on the other hand, we want something that transcends our senses. We want something that, that is the very origin of the sensory world, uh, not one of the objects in the sensory world. So it creates this, this seeming contradiction in us that the thing that we're best at getting is not the thing we really want. Uh, and so Aquinas then goes on to uh, explore uh, how could we possibly, as human beings, reach God? How could we get to God, given the fact that we are, are so good at experiencing sensory things? What's the path to get to God? And so what he does is he lays out a number of arguments uh, to support what this claim, that human beings, uh, our path to God is, first of all, by moving upwards from created things to the uncreated. So we start with the diversity of things in this world, and we move to higher and higher levels of understanding it. Uh, and so what he imagines here is that the further we get from things being like God, we get to more and more diverse sensory things that it's easy for us to try to, to experience them and explain them. But the deeper we get, uh, the closer we get to the highest explanations of things, uh, the more unified the explanation becomes, and also the more difficult it is for us to contemplate it and to think about it. And that's a really important point to keep in mind with Aquinas, is the difficulty of this journey. It's hard for the human intellect to move up to the thing that we most want. That's the paradox that we have. It's almost like, uh, if we could think about it like this, uh, you know, it, it's almost like thinking about the moon. If I really wanted to go to the moon and I stood here uh, on the surface of the earth, jumping up and down and trying to reach the moon, uh, I'm not going to reach it that way. Uh, even though I want to get there, uh, I need something else to help me uh, get to the destination that I want to reach. Or imagine, you know, uh, being on the other side of an ocean and you want to get to the other side. I need help getting there because my own natural powers are insufficient. I can't swim across the ocean or I can't jump up to the moon. I'm going to have to have a ship that's going to take me or I'm going to have to have a, a rocket that's going to launch me to it. But my own nature lacks the capacity or the power to bring about my own fulfillment. And that's the, that's the, the key paradox of Aquinas' apologetics is uh, the first thing we have to do is realize our limitations as human beings but also that our desire or our fulfillment requires that we break through those limitations and somehow reach the reality that we're longing for. And so Aquinas does this, and, and I've, I've found this to be very, very helpful as a framework for thinking about it. Uh, Aquinas says there are really three ways that human beings can come to a knowledge of God. The first way is by moving up through creatures upward to the Creator. Uh, that's the first way. So we start with the lowest and we move up to the highest. Now, this path is filled with pitfalls and problems. I know each, each uh, probably every day of your show, you talk about logical fallacies and mistakes of reason that people make. Uh, and it's always nice to hear that. But there are so many mistakes that people make in their reasoning. Uh, and uh, and so and we all make them. You know, we all, all make uh, uh, fall into errors at one time or another of our thinking. And so Aquinas is, is keenly aware of that fact that we as human beings tend to make mistakes. 
And furthermore, the things we're trying to talk about are things that are removed from our sense experience and they require that we reach to higher and higher truths that our mind becomes uh, sort of very limited at. He, he talks this way. He says that we can get this brief glimpse of God through reason, through the human intellect. Uh, but that leaves us far short of what we're really wanting. We're really wanting a relationship to God. We're wanting a sustained vision of God or, or um, encounter with God and union with God. That's what we want. But our reason is insufficient to get us there uh, because we're more comfortable dealing with sensory things. And so what Aquinas says is there's first this ascending kind of knowledge, but there's also this descending knowledge that comes from God. And he calls that divine revelation. And so divine revelation is where God comes down to us and shows us those truths that we could not find on our own uh, because of the weakness of our intellect. And so this would be things like the incarnation or the Trinity that God reveals to us that surpass the powers of pure reason or just using the intellect to discover truths about God. And so this descending knowledge that comes from God, Aquinas also says of that, I think very interestingly in these paragraphs that I'm looking at, he says that when God comes down to our level in divine revelation to show us those things that we could not know on our own, he does it in a way that's proportioned to our humanity, which is to proceed from simpler to more complex or, or more easily grasped to more difficult to grasp truths. Uh, I think this is a great insight of Aquinas is because it tells us how we should approach scripture, for instance, that in the Bible, God is progressively unfolding the truths that he wants us to know. And so as we get to the New Testament, we find the fullness of God's truth revealed uh, rather than what we find in the early stages of the Old Testament, for example. And so he says that God works with human beings in accord with our nature, that we tend to move through a process of discovery. And so God gives us truths uh, proportionate to our ability to grow and learn through the centuries. God gives us those things. And then finally, we see the fullness of God's truth coming to us through Christ. Then Aquinas says there's a third kind of knowledge of God that we can have. So if you're putting this all together, uh, you have this ascending kind of knowledge uh, that is limited because of the limitations of the human intellect. But we can get a glimpse of God, but a glimpse of God that leaves us empty. Uh, it leaves us unfulfilled. So that's the first kind, uh, this ascending knowledge, but it comes up short because of our own weaknesses. So God comes down to us to lift us up in our knowledge to these higher truths from God. But that divine revelation that comes from God is not the same thing as the beatific vision. Uh, that's the third kind of knowledge from God. Beatific vision is where God directly draws the human intellect into union with himself. In that experience, that's what the essence of what we call heaven. In that experience, the human intellect's longing for truth, for God, for happiness, comes to its final rest and to its final fulfillment. Now, going back to the second order of, of knowledge of God, the one that comes down from God, Aquinas, in the first book of the Summa Contra Gentiles, he distinguishes between uh, these, uh, these two ways of knowing God, God coming down to us and the beatific vision, by saying that God coming down to us, that kind of knowledge of God is mediated to us. If it were not mediated through something, then it would be the beatific vision. It would be the direct 
union with God that heaven is. So right now in our lives, our knowledge of God is mediated through other things. In particular, it's mediated through prophets of God, scripture, miracles, uh, all of those, those signs that God gives us that he's speaking to us, that God is communicating truth to us. And so for now in our, in our lives and in this point of history, for us as we live in this world, the way we know God is through these ways that God communicates to us, but that's not the same thing as the beatific vision. Uh, if we were to experience the beatific vision, we would have absolute certitude of the truth of God because we'd be in direct union with God. What we have right now is what we call faith. Faith is we trust the revelation that has come from God, but without seeing its ultimate object. I don't directly perceive God. I know God through the creation and through revelation that comes down from God. Now, uh, th this whole picture, this is Aquinas's vision of apologetics, is that apologetics has this descending and ascending sides. And so what we want to show in apologetics, according to Aquinas, is a couple of things. One, that this revelation that comes down from God is not contrary to or does not contradict human reason. So what Aquinas is going to do throughout the Summa Contra Nutiles is he's going to show that those things that people use to argue against the faith by saying they're irrational, they don't make sense, they're contradictory, he's going to show ways to understand and explain those things uh, in, in such a way that they're not contradictory, that we see that there are reasonable ways to understand, for example, the incarnation, which we've been looking at the last few times. There's a reasonableness to it. It's not contrary to human reason. Uh, and he, he's going to do the same thing with the Trinity. He's going to do the same thing with human freedom. He's going to do the same thing with other attributes of God. He's going to do the same thing with the sacraments. Uh, the Eucharist, famously, Aquinas is going to use Aristotle's categories to talk about what we mean by the change that takes place in the in the uh, uh, in the Eucharist, in the Eucharist. Uh, and the same thing with other sacraments and so on. He's going to show that we can apply human reason to these various aspects of our faith, and there's no contradiction. Now, he's not trying to prove them that way. He doesn't say they're true because they don't contradict human reason. He's just saying that they, they are not necessarily false, uh, and then we can go on to provide more positive arguments uh, for the faith. Excellent, excellent. We're chatting with Mark McNeil, author of the book, All in the Name, talking about St. Thomas Aquinas. Stay tuned, folks, more to come. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. Hands-On Apologetics. We are talking about St. Thomas Aquinas. And a uh, really great presentation on uh, his methodology as it's given in his other Summa, the Summa Contra Gentiles. And uh, so, Mark, I'll just let you pick up where you left off, because I, I thought that was a fantastic description of the three different ways in which uh, God reveals himself to us. Yeah, thank you. Um, uh, yeah, and I, I think these concepts, you know, it's like in reading Aquinas, you see that there are some ideas that he is uh, uh, seemingly always using or, or referring back to. And these ideas, I think, are especially valuable for reading other texts in Aquinas, because this is this paradox built into human experience 
of we want something that we're not equipped to get. Uh, we, we don't have the capacity for direct vision of God. Uh, I'm sure I've referred before to a text from Aristotle that Aquinas uses uh, where he says, our knowledge of God is like the light of the sun to the eye of the owl. Uh, so he makes this comparison that the, the owl's eyes are simply not built to gaze directly upon the sun. And so it has to see things by a ref reflected light or refracted light uh, of the moon or by the stars. Uh, and the, of course the moon reflects the light of the sun. So it's kind of a mediated light that comes to the eye of the owl. It comes from the moon. When it gets to be sunlight outside, it's like darkness for the owl. It has to close its eyes because it's too bright. And that's the condition we're in, Aquinas uh, presents. We're in the condition that like the owl, uh, we want to gaze upon the sun, but we can't. We don't have the capacity to do it. And so we have to get to the sun more indirectly. We have to see it mediated to us through other things, like the saints or, or the incarnation, of course, most supremely, is the, the nature of God comes to us through the humanity of Jesus. Uh, that is proportioned to our ability to experience because God is so much greater than our nature. God has to come down to our level and communicate through things that we know and that we can experience directly. And so Aquinas then, uh, by focusing on this paradox, uh, uh, argues that what we're really wanting as human beings is something that will have to come to us by grace. Uh, it's not something we can get on our own strength or our own power. Uh, so Aquinas' theology and philosophy is a theology and philosophy of grace. Uh, we desperately need God to draw us into God's presence forever, or we will be miserable. Uh, and Aquinas thinks that's equal to if there were not the beatific vision, if, if heaven were not a possibility for us as human beings, then there would be no purpose to human existence uh, because that's the end of it all. That's what we're trying to get in everything we do and everything that we're, we're trying to accomplish in our lives. At the end of it all, the horizon that's drawing us is union with God. And so without that, everything else would lose its meaning. Uh, it'd be like the, uh, you know, I, I, I study the history of philosophy and 20th century philosophy is a, is a very depressing world to, to study in for a lot of different reasons. But one of the reasons is uh, because you, you have, uh, in light of, of uh, things like the world wars and so on, there's a, a deep and dark sense in a lot of thinkers uh, that if we believe only in this world, then there is no purpose to human existence. That uh, you know, people like uh, Albert Camus and Jean-Paul Sartre and other existentialist philosophers very clearly uh, raised issues like Camus, for example, a famous uh, uh, essay of his uh, called The Myth of Sisyphus, uh, the ancient myth of Sisyphus who was condemned by Zeus to an eternity of rolling a boulder up a hill only to have it roll back down every day and he has to keep pushing it up every day, but for no purpose. Uh, it, there's no ultimate goal to it. And so Camus famously raised the question, the only, the only question that really matters anymore in philosophy is why not suicide? Why not end our lives? Because there's no purpose to it. Uh, and he tried to argue that that's not the path we should go. But he raises the question and said that's the, the only legitimate question left in philosophy. Certainly from an atheist standpoint, there's no ultimate fulfillment for us as human beings. And so we're, we're in this world where we're trying to get something that we can't get, that's not available to us. Aquinas 
of course, uh, doesn't go that path. He goes the path of saying, because we have this desire for God, uh, it can be satisfied. Uh, C.S. Lewis argues that, and many others argue that, that the very capacity uh, for this, like our bodies yearn for food and light and water, and it really exists. Even if I find myself one day in a desert and I can't find any water, there still is such a thing as water. So it is for us as human beings. We long for God, whether we realize it or not, and the reality is there. Even if I never find it, the reality is there. Uh, and so Aquinas is an optimistic thinker, and he says human nature teaches us about what we want most deeply, and it teaches us thereby about reality. Now, maybe one other quick point I could make if, if we have the time. Uh, one other quick point is one might ask this question, and I ask when I teach this to my students, these kinds of ideas, I'll ask them, you know, why do you think God put us in this situation? Why would God have made a world in which the thing that makes us most supremely happy is a thing that we're not equipped to get yet? It would require the grace of God to elevate us to a place that we could experience final and lasting happiness. So why did God make a world in which we have to journey? Uh, we have to make decisions. Uh, we have to grow into an, an understanding of this. Uh, we have to experience before we can choose this. Why would God make a world like this? And pretty quickly, maybe it's because they've been exposed to our faith, but pretty quickly they'll come to say, well, there must be some value in freedom. There must be some value in us being able to say yes uh, to God's offer of eternal life and, and happiness. That there must be some value that God places in us being able to say yes. Uh, and if we can say yes, we can also say no. Uh, and so there must be, it must be that God values a loving response from his creatures in which we can say yes or no uh, and that that makes the, the whole project worthwhile is that we can respond to God in love. Uh, and, uh, and so if we do respond to God in love, then that becomes transforming and ultimately elevates us into the presence of God forever uh, through Christ uh, in what we call the beatific vision. So, uh, so anyway, that I think is, is Aquinas' vision of what apologetics is all about. It's about helping people to see this upward path that the intellect does uh, give to us clues and glimpses of what we're all about, what human life is all about, but it also teaches us how weak our intellects are and how, how much we need God's grace in order to help us finish all of this. If anything, and I, I know we've talked about this before, Gary, but if anything, Aquinas's theology and philosophy is a path to humble worship and adoration. Uh, it teaches us the, the human mind is a magnificent gift from God, but it's also very, very small when compared to the goal that God is inviting us to. Whatever we learn in this world, is it pales in comparison to what is in store for us in union with God. Uh, and we get glimpses of that, of course, in Christ, who shows us this magnificent God of love that he's inviting us into a, a relationship with. But, uh, but Aquinas' theology and philosophy shows us uh, the greatness of the human person, but also the limits of the human person, and thereby teaches us humility, uh, that we're not nothing. We are something valuable, that God has made something magnificent in human beings, but we're also uh, not so great that we should become filled with pride. Rather, we should be humbled by the fact that we're made for such a fantastic end or goal or aim, 
but that it's going to take God to get us there. It's going to take the grace of God to get us there. Uh, so anyway, Aquinas is, I think, theology and philosophy both humbles us, but also is hopeful, and it lifts us up to this uh, this incredible end uh, to which we're called. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Very well said. And you know, what really struck me as you're presenting this is uh, you really get a glimpse at the love of God, too. You know, uh, God didn't just leave us with our own natural powers to grasp and grope trying to understand them, but he humbled himself in condescending down to our level and working, you know, with us according to our nature. And uh, which, you know, which in, uh, you know, Colossians, right, <laughs> emptied himself, uh, becoming a slave. I mean, this incredible humility of God, and that ties in perfectly what you said is, in a way, we're called to, to image him, to humble ourselves and, uh, and, um, and help others, you know, uh, point them to Christ so that they can participate in truth and grace. No, absolutely. I, I, in fact, I think I think that's a perfect way to end this is by saying what we discover in Jesus at root is that the God that we're yearning for is love. Uh, Hans Jürgen von Balthasar wrote a great little book, uh, probably my favorite thing by him, uh, important 20th century Catholic thinker. But he wrote a, a, a wonderful little book called Love Alone is Credible. Uh, that at the end of the day, what makes our faith credible, believable, uh, is that it is centered on love, uh, a God who loves us as human beings. And, uh, and and that's what we hear from Christ, is the love of God. God so loved the world, he gave his only uh, begotten son. And so the, the message of love is ultimately the heart and soul, not only of the gospel, the good news, but also of the very essence of God. Uh, the Trinity is at core eternal, um, eternal self-giving, uh, life-giving, uh, infinitely fulfilling love. And the universe has come from that God, and we're invited to return to that God freely and in love. Uh, and our end will be, if we respond to that call, it will be eternal union with that God who is love. So the whole thing is about love. And, uh, and love as, not as a mushy feeling, but love as this total gift of self that we see embodied in Jesus in time and space and history. Amen. Amen. Well, you know, we're coming up to the end of the program, and something that I was going to ask you, any thoughts about putting this into book form? Because this is such great insights and, and information. Yeah, you know, I have had thoughts like that. In fact, many years ago, I wrote a, uh, a book on the apologetics of St. Thomas Aquinas, a manuscript that was never published. It was, I did do a series of talks, um, locally, uh, six talks at St. Joseph's Communications published under the title of The Apologetics of St. Thomas Aquinas, and I turned it into a manuscript. Uh, part of it I actually used as a master's thesis in, in philosophy. There was a part of it that dealt with uh, uh, the sort of path, the upward path to, to God uh, through reason, and uh, and that was kind of turned into a, a master's thesis. But but it's it's a project that's out there, and it's, it's swimming around in my mind, and uh, Maybe your words will encourage me to take it up again. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely would be the first in the line to pick it up. Well, Mark, hey, thank you so much for coming back on the show. We appreciate it. Sure, thank you. All right, Mark McDeal, author of the book, All in the Name, available through Catholic Answers Press. 
And, wow, the hour's flowing. Coming up next, High Impact Catholic Talkman at you with the Terry and Jesse Show. Thank you so much for listening. And it's time for me to shut down the Midwest Command Center here. Turn off the dojo lights. Thank you so much for listening. God willing, we'll be back again tomorrow. Do this thing we call the Amazon Apology.